All right, welcome back. How's everybody doing today? Good, good, it's a gorgeous day out there. You should be like, yes, it's so good, I'm so good. Um, all right, um, just some reminders. The retreat date is correct on the, new, um, on the new handout for your schedule. It's a Saturday, it's not a Sunday. I had mistakenly put the eighth, I think, on the one that was on the website. So just wanna make sure you have that in your, um, on your calendar correctly. Um, just make sure you're working on baptismal certificates. If you haven't gotten them to me, I need um, sponsor commitment form signed. And on the back of that is also the um, emergency contact form. So make sure you're getting all that taken care of for me. And um, I need your, your newly issued baptismal by the time I register you for adult confirmation, which will be probably in the next month. So that's why I'm just on you about it because I have to take the information off of that and put it on the website for the um, archdiocese. So they're real particular about that. So, so I need that by the, so or else I just can't register you. Two people didn't get confirmed last year because they didn't get me their baptismal certificate on time. So, um, so that's important. Um, any other questions, concerns, comments before we get going? Okay. Well, last week we talked about the story of salvation history. We talked about um, the process of formation. We talked about sponsorship. And then this week we're gonna, we're gonna delve into the creed, kind of that general statement of belief about uh, the three articles of faith, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, some other important issues are in the creed that we'll be unpacking as we go through the process. But Mark McNeil is here today to kind of talk about the creed in, in those three articles of faith, mostly focusing on the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mark is actually one of the few people that I have presenting that have actually written a book. And so um, he's written a book on the, on the Blessed Trinity. And so um, he's got some personal, um, personal experience with struggling with that belief um, and then coming into the Catholic Church um, and certainly coming to terms with, um, with our belief in in the Blessed Trinity. So he's gonna share a lot of that with you today. I'm gonna to leave you in his capable hands and I'll return before the end. So if you think of questions that you have for me by the time we close, um, I will be back. And I know you'll enjoy the time um, that you have with Mark. So please help me welcome Mark McNeil from Straight Jesuit. Nice to see all of you. Uh, my normal Sunday morning routine is to get up, uh, I go to St. Luke the Evangelist, which is on the other side of town, um, southeast side of town, so if you're headed toward Galveston, they're around the Friendswood, Clear Lake areas uh, where I live, uh, work over on this side of town at Strake Jesuit, which uh, is an all-boys Catholic high school, about 1,220 boys, uh, right across the parking lot at St. Agnes Academy, which is an all-girls school, and so we, uh, I've been there for about 20 years. Uh, in fact, in January, it'll be 20 years that I've been there. Uh, and the uh, first 10 years there, I taught theology the, full-time, and then the last uh, 9 or 10 years, I've been in a role uh, that we call Assistant Principal for Formation, which uh, focuses on our adult members of our community in terms of our Catholic and Jesuit mission as a school. And so I spend a lot of time with adults. I still teach one class, which is what I'd prefer to do, uh, but uh, love working with the boys there. Uh, but also it's a wonderful joy to be able to share our faith and to stimulate conversation about it at our school. A normal Sunday morning for me is uh, my wife and I, my daughter, who is our only child still at home, uh, get up in the morning and we go. I have a, a men's class that I meet with at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning. We just talk about our faith and 
whatever people are struggling with or thinking about. And so we've been doing that for about seven or eight years on Sunday morning. It grew out of the Axe Retreat, if you've uh, heard of it. Uh, it's a big deal in our parish. And so uh, a lot of these men have discovered the beauty of the Catholic faith and, and the beauty of the Catholic community uh, through retreat and through the experience of retreat. And uh, out of that came this idea of us getting together and just talking about our faith. And so that's the first thing I typically do on Sunday morning. And then after that, we go to Mass, 915 Mass at our parish. And then we usually go to a little taqueria that's close to our home, and we eat uh, breakfast together. And then we go home and take a nap. <laughs> so right now is traditional nap time in my home. Um, so if you have any routine similar to that, then you're probably wanting your nap too. So uh, we'll try to uh, hopefully have a good conversation together and maybe you can get a little later nap uh, today if that's your thing. Uh, if your thing's watching the Texans, maybe you can catch a little bit of that when we're done. Uh, but we do have a wonderful subject that, uh, to consider today. Uh, it's always daunting to approach uh, this subject of the creed, in particular, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You know, the creed is structured that way. Uh, if, uh, if you look at it and think about uh, Christian baptism, we're baptized in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And so when we come for baptism, or we bring someone, our child, for baptism, let's say, uh, we are saying we're bringing them to the faith in God who has revealed himself to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're saying. And so the early church, when an adult would come to receive baptism, uh, they would ask the person wanting baptism, do you believe in God the Father, and God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that? And then you're baptized based on that. If you bring your child, you bring your child sharing that faith and wanting to impart it to your child. Uh, and so this faith in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, whatever all that means, and it means a lot, uh, whatever all that means, that's what we are entering into through Christian baptism. We're entering into the realm of belief in God who has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it started with Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 19, before he ascends into heaven after his resurrection, he says to his disciples, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the disciples went out and began uh, bringing people to the Christian faith, and they would baptize them the way that Jesus told them to do, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That grew during the early centuries, the first century or two of the church. It grew into a long, longer explanation of what that means, in the what's called the Apostles' Creed, which it simply elaborated a little bit on what exactly do we mean by Father, and what do we mean by Son, and when it has the Son, that's a longer part of it, because really what the Creed does is it reminds us of the story of Jesus. Uh, the, the story of Jesus is the way that we discover God as our loving Father and as Holy Spirit because of the life of Jesus and because of what he did and what he taught. Uh, and then, of course, the creed concludes with the Holy Spirit and the church and a handful of other things. Later, several centuries later, in the 4th century A.D., so about 300 years after Jesus, there were a lot of controversies in the church about exactly who is Jesus. And those are challenging questions because if you look at the New Testament, there are things in the New Testament that we look at and they teach us very clearly that Jesus was one of us. He was a human being. He was born. He grew up, uh, he suffered, he died. All of these are things that we share in as well. 
Uh, he experienced our mortality. He experienced, you know, growing and moving through the different stages of life. And so if we say Jesus is really a man, we're right. He is really a man. However, it's not that easy just to fit Jesus into that one box that he's man. Because on the other hand, Jesus says and does things that aren't what normal human beings do. Uh, in fact, he says and does things that make us think that we should think of him in the context of God. He forgives people of their sins by his own authority. He raises the dead. He speaks about God as his father in a very unique way. He talks about, reading John's gospel is particularly clear on this, he speaks about his relationship to the father as something that pre-existed his coming into this world. One of the verses that I think speaks of this most beautifully is in John's Gospel, chapter 17, where Jesus says, Father, uh, glorify me with your own self, with the glory that I had with you before the world was made. So Jesus talks about himself in the context of his father in a way that makes us think he's not merely a man. But how do those two things work together? He's really a man, that's true, but he's really more than a man. He's really the son of the father, whatever all that means. But it means that he's more than a mere man. And so the early church struggled during those early, early centuries to define exactly what that relationship is between Jesus being truly one of us and also being greater than us as the son of the father. And I could spend this whole time just telling you about all the failed attempts to explain that relationship. There were a lot of them, uh, but that wouldn't be a very good use of our time. I think a better use of our time would be to talk more positively about what it is exactly we're saying in the Catholic tradition. Uh, what have we been saying for the last 2,000 years about who Jesus is? And how does that reveal to us who God is as our Father? And what is the Holy Spirit all about? And so that's uh, what we want to try to focus on here uh, this, this morning or this afternoon. Before we get to that, though, I wanted to... This uh, next summer, one of the things I get to do in, in the job that I have is I get to do some travel through the course of the year. And next uh, summer, in uh, the end of June, June uh, for the only time in my life, I've traveled a lot to the, uh, uh, the Middle East and to Europe and uh, some to Central America, uh, but I've never been to the Far East. And so there's going to be a, a conference of Jesuit schools and educators in Indonesia. And so I'm, I'm going to travel to Indonesia. I'm kind of depressed looking at the flights. I haven't found anything less than 35 hours of traveling time that'll get me there. Uh, but I am kind of looking forward to going to that part of the world. And so I, um, uh, at least once in my lifetime, I want to try to get to that part of the world. And so I was uh, doing a little bit of reading about Indonesia and uh, uh, things in that part of the world. Indonesia is a dominantly Muslim country, uh, but there's a smattering of other religions that are there, just like we have here as well. Uh, and the dominant religion, of course, in our country is Christianity, but, uh, but there's also growing other uh, forms of religion. Uh, and one of the things that is on our itinerary to do while we're there in Indonesia is to travel to, apparently, uh, I think it's some uh, eight, nine hundred year old uh, Hindu temple. Uh, and so one thing I've been doing in the last uh, few days is just uh, going back and refreshing my mind about uh, some of these far eastern religions that are not as dominant here in our part of the world. Uh, and uh, so I picked up an old book uh, that I read many years ago uh, called The Religions of Man by uh, uh, Houston Smith or Huston Smith. It's kind of a classic book on the various different uh, world religions. It's very beautifully written, uh, very thoughtful, and very fair. He doesn't try to 
argue one particular religious system over another. In fact, if you read each chapter of it, he's trying to make the best possible uh, summary and case for all the different major world religions. And so he starts with the Far East and he goes through Hinduism and Buddhism and Confucianism and so on, and then he works his way to the Middle East uh, to Judaism and Islam and Christianity. He finishes the book with Christianity. Uh, and uh, it's like a very nicely uh, written book, and it's the kind of thing that if you want to get a fair treatment of a, a religion, it's one to look at. One of the interesting things in reading this book and going back and rereading it is seeing how uh, all of the different world religions do share some things in common. We have some significant differences, and those differences are important. Uh, but there are also some things that we share in common. So when I was reading about Hinduism, uh, I noticed how similar it is in the way that it gets into the idea of religious faith, how similar it is to Christianity. And let me explain, and I'm going somewhere with this, so, uh, so hang with me and then you'll see how this is relevant to the creed. He starts with, in treating Hinduism, he starts with asking the question, what do we really want as human beings? What do human beings really want? And he starts by saying, well, there's an obvious candidate of what people want, what human beings want, and that is pleasure. We want to feel good. So that's the first thing that human beings often uh, strive for when you're a little child. We want things that are pleasing to us. We want to have fun. Uh, we want things that make us feel good. And so the first level of uh, things that people want is pleasure. But over time, we discover that pleasure is a little too narrow to fully satisfy us. So that if I become obsessed with only pleasure, that's all I seek in my life, I become very distorted. He likens it to that and the next one that we're going to talk about, or that I'll briefly share with you. He likens it to like a child's toy. You know, a child plays with a toy and they have fun. That's great. Uh, in fact, it'd be kind of sad if a kid didn't have toys. However, if the kid's still playing with that toy 40 years later or 50 years later, uh, then something is stunted in his development and his growth. So the things that bring us joy and, and happiness when we're three are probably not exactly the same things that make us happy when we're 40 or 50 or 60. Um, not that pleasure is bad. There's nothing wrong with pleasure and nothing wrong with feeling good. But if I'm obsessed with that and that's the only thing that I'm concerned about, then I'm living really on an animal level of life. Uh, and the reality is with pleasurable things, is they don't fully satisfy us. And so if they become the sole goal of my life, all I want is physical pleasure. All I want is the satisfaction of my uh, physical desires. If that is the only thing that occupies my life, then I become very, very narrow. And actually those things tend to over, that, um, I wanted to say they overwhelm me, but that's not the right thing I want to say. They, I end up becoming a captive to them. They end up enslaving me. Because the only thing that matters to me is food and drink and satisfaction of my bodily you know, pleasure, desires for pleasure. And then I become a slave to those things. And I'm sure you've seen that before, maybe in your own life, in the lives of others, where they, where they couldn't overcome the desire for satisfying their body because of higher concerns. So that a man, for example, couldn't overcome his sexual impulses, and so he betrays his wife and his family and ruins his home or things like that. Uh, or a person is so captive to their desire for things or for pleasure uh, that they can't discipline themselves to go to work or to live a disciplined life because all they want to do is satisfy their body. 
So pleasure is not bad in and of itself for sure. There's, there's a good about pleasure. But it's not all that we want. It's like if pleasure is this circle of things we want, human desires are bigger than that. And so at a certain point as we develop as children, as we're growing up, we realize that not just bodily pleasure is desirable, but there are other things we want. For example, the next stage is success. We want to have success. Not just satisfying our desires, but we also want to go beyond that and to get wealth or power or fame or recognition for something done well. We like to, I mean, the boys over at our school, you know, I was at a football game Friday night, they like to win. If they're not into athletics, they like to win debate. We've got a great debate team, and so they, they compete on a national level. And so these young men love to win. They're motivated by a desire to win, to be the best at what they do. We have people, the students that play instruments well. We have some that are, they, they engage in competitions and so on. We want to be good at what we do. We want to succeed. And we want to uh, have those things that accompany that. We want to have buying power to be able to get the things that we want. And we want to have recognition for that and so on. Um, we, we like to have power. We like to have the ability to control things. But like the first level of things, like pleasure, this runs out too. It's not everything we want. We discover along the way, there's, there's a number of problems with this, and I don't want to go through all of them, but there's a number of problems with thinking that fame, wealth, and, and uh, you know, success are the, the only thing that I want. That's what my life is all about. There's a bunch of problems with that. One of the problems is we discover along the way that we can't, uh, um, if I have something, if I have money or if I have certain power, then another person can't have that same money and power. In other words, these are quantifiable things. That if I have the power of something, then somebody else doesn't. And so it creates competition. And that competition, if that becomes the goal of my life, is to win, to have money, to have power, to have fame. If that's what drives me, and that's all that my life is about, I become a slave to the greed for those things. You ever seen anybody that had tons of money, but they were unhappy because they had to keep getting more? Or someone who has power, but then they're disappointed because they lose that power? Or they have fame. Look at people who are famous in the past, and they're not today. And look at all the cases of people who suffer from depression or addictions of various, sor of various sorts. Because the fame that they have, they can't hold on to it. Uh, and that's inevitably true. You can be famous one moment, and then the next moment you're wanting to keep holding on to it or get more of it, and you just can't seem to hold on to it. And so like pleasure, the desire for success, which is not necessarily bad in itself, it's good to want to get ahead, it's good to want to have a good job or to have influence and so on. It's not that those things are bad, it's that when those things become the end all, they're everything, then I end up becoming a slave to them to, or to that greed. That, that ties me to that as the goal of my life. So at a certain point, as we develop morally, as we develop in our own sense of ourself, we realize that just focusing on my private success and fame and pleasure is a dead-end street. Not that those things are bad in and of themselves. Uh, they're bad when they become controllers of me or they capt uh, make me a captive to them. So. What, I wanted, what happens at a certain point is I realize that those things are a dead-end street. That's not all of what I want. I'm bigger than that. That human desires are bigger than that. 
And so what often happens is people will say, well, I need to find something beyond myself to give myself to. Sometimes people take up social causes, or they might become more generous with their time or with their money, wanting to help others. Often they will, they will move from a focus just on themselves to the community. How can I make the community better? How can I make the world better around me? And so a sense of duty or obligation or responsibility or giving or caring or loving, all of those things become part of what motivates a person. It's not just about me. It's about doing something for others or for the community or whatever. So that's a, a next stage is the emergence of a sense of duty. And it's at this point in this summary of Hinduism, and nothing so far is foreign to Christianity that I've talked about. Nothing here is opposed to or weird to Catholic ears. This is all common uh, religious wisdom, is that these ways here, you know, the path of desire, or the path of, you know, of self-satisfaction, is a path that runs out. And I look for another path. And that's where religious faith begins to emerge, is when I have a sense of something beyond myself that's valuable and that I need in order for me to be really fulfilled. How can I be fulfilled? Not just by focusing on my own ego or my own private fulfillment. I need something beyond myself. And so a sense of duty or belonging to something bigger than me. But even that leaves us a little short. Because if I go back to the original question that we asked at the beginning, which is, what do I really want? If I say I want pleasure, that's an incomplete answer. Yeah, we want pleasure, but that's not all we want. I want success. Yeah, I want success. But really, success, it's, it's, uh, uh, it's this fleeting thing. It's not really what I want most. I want to help the community. Sure, I want to help the community. I want to do something that's beneficial beyond myself. But really, getting back to ourselves, what do we want most of all? We want purpose. We want a meaning. We want something that ties it all together in connection with something bigger than it all. Something absolute. Something supreme. If we think about ourselves, we want, we want to be. We want to exist. But not just temporarily. We really want, what we really want deep down inside is everlasting love. Now I'm, I'm reaching beyond Hinduism now. I'm talking more from a Christian perspective, that what we really want is love. We want, uh, we want something to which we can give our lives that is of permanent value. Just go to, I often uh, think of this, you know, go to a, my wife and I recently celebrated an anniversary. I went over to the store and I was looking for a card that would capture some of what I wanted to communicate to her. And if you look at anniversary cards or look at wedding cards or look at, um, uh, Valentine's cards, or just look at anything that's got, you know, that's celebrating relationships, especially relationships of lifelong commitment. Typically, almost without exception, unless they're just joke cards, typically they will in some way integrate into them the desire that that relationship lasts forever. To my sweetheart, I'll love you with all my heart forever. I never find one of those cards that says something like, to my sweetheart, I'll love you with all my heart for the next six months. <laughs> I am totally yours for the next six months. After that, game's off and I'm going on. No, what human beings want, whether it works out or not, whether, whether 
things work the way that they had hoped. Um, there's lots of tragedies that happen in our world and so on. And that, and that in and of itself is, is a, uh, a fascinating learning experience about what we really want as human beings. But what human beings want most is everlasting love. Uh, and the things that we talked about before, those three levels of things, can't give that to us. They simply can't give it to us. We also want to know. We want to understand things. Human beings are, are you know, inherently uh, curious. We want to know. We want to understand things. And there's no limit to that. Human beings are always trying to know. I remember when I was a kid, the things that intrigued me were looking at the night sky, looking at books. My dad would get these books, you know, television offer things, and books on astronomy or books on mysteries of the universe or whatever. And I remember flipping through those and looking at pictures of the stars and wondering, what's out there? What is there to know that I don't know? And so human beings, on one level or another, experience that curiosity about what is out there, what can be known, what is the truth of things. And we also want joy. We want peace. We want internal harmony. Uh, we, we want All of those are, are things that we want, but we want them without limit. We want them permanently. And none of these things down here can give that to us. And so there is in us a desire to reach up to, I'll, even, I'll use the word meaning, I'll put it as ultimate uh, meaning. And what I mean by meaning is, you know, when we look for the meaning of things, we're looking for a context in which to situate all of the little things that make up this world in our own lives that give to them some overarching purpose. If I say, what's the meaning of this? Or what's the meaning of life? I'm asking, what is it that makes sense of it all? And so for us as human beings, pleasure, that's, that's too small. Success, that's too small. It goes away. At least when I die, I'm not going to be able to take it with me. And so they're temporary. I have things temporarily. And, and so it is also with the community. The community comes and goes. The people of the community come and go. Is there something permanent that I can sort of stake my life on or give my life to? So I went through all of that simply to say this. All of what I just got through talking about is perfectly compatible with Christianity and it is common to virtually all world religions to think in this way. Why do we need religious faith? We need religious faith because we are more than anything less than religious faith. We need something more than any of these other approaches to life to make sense of who we are and what our lives are all about. Now the Christian answer ultimately to this question, well let me, let me tell you briefly about the, the Hindu answer to where do they go from here and how do we differ? Well in the Hindu answer to the question of what is, where is all this going and what does it all mean? goes something like this. The Hindu sees human experience as really being two things. <clears throat> Underneath all of this messy world that we see of things that make us happy and unhappy and make us want to you know, be successful or, and, and have pleasure and all that stuff, all of that's really a bunch of diversions from what's real. What's real is what is underneath all of this. Underneath all of this is a desire for infinity, a desire for being without limitations. So what you have in Hinduism is, like, think of it as an ocean. Here's the depth of the ocean, and here's the surface of the ocean. On the surface, it's all moving and changing and distracting, and you're reacting to it. If you live on the surface of the water, 
you live a very troubled, you know, bouncing around life. But if you go under the surface, the deeper you go, the calmer it gets. And so, in human experience, if you live just on the surface, reacting to life as it punches you around, it's very confusing and disorienting. If you go deeper into yourself, in Hinduism, if you go deeper into yourself, you discover the infinite. That is you. You are the infinite. You are the one. And you find with deep within yourself that which links us all together, which is the infinite one. And we can't live up here on the surface or we're never really happy. We never really find that peace. Now, this is where we diverge from Christian faith. In Christian faith, in Catholicism, we can say, yeah, the world around us is very distracting and all that. And there is a depth within the human person. But the depth within the human person is not that I am the infinite. The depth within the human person is an openness to the infinite. It's an openness to the God who is not me, is other than me, who made us all. And there is a capacity in me to experience that God. And another difference between Christianity and Hinduism is, and I'm just creating a contrast so to make clearly, you know, kind of make clear what it is we're saying. Not only in the Christian view is the human person not God, we're not the ultimate, the infinite, but, and the God who is real is the God who made this world. But God made us with an openness to experience him. But here's another point. This surface world that we're experiencing here, of all this changing stuff, you and me and the, you know, the stars and the moon and the trees and the grass and the building and all that stuff, it's real too. It's not just a diversion. It's real. And it's so real, in fact, that the God who made the world and made us with a capacity to experience that God actually takes a part of that matter, a piece of that matter, and unites it to himself so as to speak to us about what it's all about and what it all means. And that act of taking a piece of that matter, a part of that material world, and uniting it to himself so that we could have a point of contact with God right here. Right? So God, who is not me, my depth, the depth of my person, underneath all my experience, there is this desire for the infinite. I can try to feed it with pleasure, but I, it runs out of power to satisfy. I can try to feed it with success, but it runs out of power to satisfy. I'm still wanting something more. I can try to feed it with doing nice things to other people, as wonderful as that is, but there's still something lacking. I have to finally reach a point at which I discover what I'm really wanting underneath all of this is the experience of the absolute, the infinite, the supreme, which is not me, is beyond me, but that I'm made to be united with. And the way that that God meets us, meets our depth, is precisely on that surface, in this world. In the, in the context of the world that we're experiencing right now, God takes that to himself 
and reveals himself. And that is who Jesus is. Jesus is God, the God who is not this world. God made this world. He's not a subject in this world. God is the creator of this world. God is the sustainer of this world. You should not think of God as just another one of us, just great big on a mountain somewhere or floating around in the sky. God brought into being, gave existence to that which had no existence. The only thing that has to be is God. The only thing that, that, uh, that could not ever not be is God. Everything else doesn't have to be. That's why this world is a mystery. That's why when we look at it, we try to understand it. How did that happen? How did that occur? Where did that come from? These are normal human questions. Why do we even ask them? We ask them because things around us show themselves to be things that need an explanation. When you wake up in the morning and the sun has come up and you say, well, how'd that happen? Or if you go to your, I don't know, to your office and, and the books that you left there, or the papers you left there yesterday are gone, you say, how did that happen? Because those are things that occur and they need an explanation. God is not like that. God is not one of those things that happen and need an explanation. God is that which must be and always is. The world that God makes, though, is not like that. And that's why we ask about it. Why is it? So God creates the world. And by creation, I mean he calls into being that which had no being. He makes that to be which has no right to be. But God allows it to by his creative power. So God makes the world. He creates the world. And in that world are creatures like us who have this openness or this capacity to know God and to experience God. And God, because God is not this world, and because we are in this world, and because we are creatures in this world, and we can't possibly understand perfectly, fully, or even approximately what God is like on the deepest level, God comes down to our level, takes our world of matter to himself in what we call the incarnation. And that's who Jesus is, is God coming close to us to show us what he's all about. Okay? Any questions at this point? I've said a lot of stuff. Hopefully it makes some sense. Um, you know, so just to summarize, because now I want to turn specifically to the contents of the creed. Um, and, and I want to do that, first of all, by talking about, um, give you a sketch of Jesus, the life of Jesus, so giving you a couple of, of focal points in his life that will answer this question of what is God telling us through Jesus? What is the incarnation all about, and what does God communicate to us through it? So that's the next item that I want us to deal with. But before we do that, if there are any questions, or I, I love to argue, so if you disagree with something, I'm happy to, uh, to disagree with you. Uh, teenage boys love to argue, uh, and so uh, that's what I do for a living, is argue with people. Uh, not really, but, um, but there's a fair amount of it. So I'm happy if there's anything that's come to your mind along the way, uh, we can pause and take a look at that. Uh, any, any comments, questions, thoughts? In, uh, apparently the latest theory in education is you're supposed to wait seven seconds. As awkward as it is, you're supposed to wait seven seconds for people to pose questions if they have it. Uh, so, so I'll count to seven. <laughs> So that either means one of several things. One is you want us to get this going. Uh, it could mean 
uh, it was so obscure and unclear <laughs> that you don't even know what I'm talking about. Or it was so clear and it was so completely explained that no questions remain. Um, I doubt that any one of those are true for everyone. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if they're all true for somebody. So, uh, okay. Uh, if, you, if you do have any, hold on to them then, and uh, let's move to the next step of this. So we've got a little bit of a sense, I think, hopefully, at this point, we have a little bit of a sense of, you know, um, why is religion important? Religion is important because we're incomplete without it. We are religious beings. We are made for the experience of, and the search for, meaning. What is it all about? And all religions share that in common a desire to answer those human questions that we have. And on that level, all religions have something in common and a basis of conversation with each other. In the Christian religion, in Catholicism in particular, you know, Christianity is divided, unfortunately, into different forms. But most forms of Christianity share in common uh, these fundamental beliefs that I've talked about so far. I've talked about nothing that's distinctively Catholic here. Uh, these are things shared with the Orthodox Christians, with many of the Protestant denominations, and so on. So, so far, what I've talked about is simply the idea of the incarnation, that God took part in the human experience by taking his own material creation and using it as a way of communicating most personally and most perfectly, as far as we can understand, in this world. This is what separates us from many of the religions of the world, the other religions of the world, uh, is this belief that God is fundamentally love and that that desire that we have for infinite love is answered in Jesus as God's expression of his love for the world. Okay. So let's now shift to Jesus. We've talked a little bit about God as creator um, and about this idea of God as sort of the answer to the human desire for infinity and meaning. But let's turn now to Jesus, the Son of the Father. And let's do this. We could do this in a lot of different ways, but let's do it this way. Let's just take a quick look at some moments in the life of Jesus. We know about Jesus from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, and the other writings of the New Testament, but these are the most complete looks at Jesus. And even then, they focus primarily on the adult public ministry of Jesus, culminating in his death, burial, and resurrection. But in a couple of the cases of the Gospels, in the case of Matthew and Luke, they start with stories surrounding the birth of Jesus. Mark's Gospel begins with Jesus' baptism. Um, and so what does Jesus do in his adult life? Well, in his adult life, he um, is baptized by John the Baptist, John the Baptizer. And what does all that mean? Well, people were coming to John to be baptized. What does baptism mean? Well, for John, it meant a way of renewing a person's life. So ritual baths or ritual washings were not uncommon. If somebody wanted to enter into the, the, uh, the religion of Judaism uh, from outside, they weren't historically and ancestrally a part of their religion. If they wanted to become part of it, one of the things they would do is undergo a ritual bath that would uh, uh, signify several things. One, ritual purification. And also, it was a way of connecting with the history of the Israelite people. So the Israelite people, remember, had left Egypt under Moses' leadership, and they passed through the waters of the Red Sea or, uh, in order to get to the pro toward the Promised Land. 
when they went, got to the promised land, a generation later, 40 years later, under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land. So crossing through or passing through water as a formative event in the identity of the people, their understanding of themselves as God's covenant people, passing through the water was part of their, their conscious uh, memory of the past. So when people wanted to convert to their religion, they would symbolically go to the water. In the case of John the Baptist, they went to the water of the Jordan River where they had crossed into the Promised Land under Joshua's leadership centuries before. So when they went to John the Baptist to be baptized, John was saying, God is about to do something new. He's going to send his Messiah, his chosen one, his anointed one, his king. He's going to send his king into the world and he's going to bring purity. He's going to bring... Uh, you know, uh, judgment upon the world and so on. And so people were coming to John to receive baptism as a way of saying, I want to get ready for his coming. I want to start over again my life. So here they are going to John. Jesus goes to be baptized too. Now that's very unusual because we know the rest of the story of the Gospels that Jesus is precisely the one that John is preparing for. The people going to John were really outcasts. They were lowlifes. They were people who had really messed up their lives. And now they're going to John to try to straighten it all out because if the Messiah is coming, I want to be ready. But here comes Jesus to be baptized. And John recognizes that he is unique and that he doesn't need to receive this baptism, which is pretty powerful in and of itself. How did he recognize that? What did he see in Jesus? He says, no, I have need to be baptized by you, not you to be baptized by me. Jesus said, allow it to be so. And so he goes into the same waters that all these sinners, these outcasts, these rejects of society were going. He goes and stands in the same waters with them. And of course, you know the story. The father speaks from heaven and says, to, you know, so that John can hear it. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Now, if you fast forward to the end of the public life of Jesus. So on one side of it, you have Jesus' baptism. And you fast forward to the end where you have the crucifixion. Here again, we have Jesus being um, you know, subjected to a kind of torture and death that was reserved for the lowest criminals. Notice the common denominator. The beginning of Jesus' public life, there he is with the outcasts, with the rejects of society. You fast forward to the end of his public ministry, and there he is hanging on a cross. Now, crucifixion, from what I understand, it's a way of torturing people that was developed among the Persians and picked up by the Romans. It was a way of trying to deter people who were insurrectionists, people who were threats to the state. Uh, it was a way of keeping people under the subjection of the Roman authority by saying, if, you, if we get any... Uh, reason to believe that you are trying to undermine us, that's what's going to happen to you. And so it was intended to be humiliating. It was intended to be painful. It was intended to be drug out. Uh, they had other method, methods of putting people to death. You know, they could chop people's heads off or whatever, and they could do things really fast. This was a way of dragging out a person's death and making them a public spectacle to everyone. So Jesus, because of the envy of the religious leaders in Jerusalem, that's the it's a more complicated story than that. But because of envy and because of hate, Jesus is nailed to a cross and subjected to public humiliation. Alongside of him 
were thieves, criminals, on the two crosses next to him. So from the beginning to the end of the public life of Jesus, when he begins his ministry after being baptized by John, and when he finishes it in Jerusalem, suffering and dying on a cross, from beginning to end, he associates with the broken, the hurting, the outcast. And if you look at what Jesus does in between those two moments, in his, you know, he traveled around Galilee, the northern territory of, of the land of Israel. If you're familiar with the map of that area, Galilee is this area around the Sea of Galilee. It's a lake about uh, 15 miles uh, wide, and about, or about 8 miles wide, about 15 miles uh, across, uh, or the width of it. And so, uh, or from top to bottom. Uh, so Jesus spent most of his public ministry going around to the little towns, around the Sea of Galilee, sometimes going off a little bit further, and sometimes traveling down to Jerusalem back, which is about 40, 50 miles away. So he'd go around this area. And what would he do when he did that? Well, he would teach. And when he taught, he would teach, and he would teach mainly using parables. Parables are stories or images that simply make a comparison between something that people are used to thinking about, and spiritual truths, or truths about God. Uh, we do it all the time. Uh, you know, we, we make comparisons to try to make things easier to understand, and Jesus did that. He was a great teacher. He used images that people could relate to. So let me give you an example or two of the way Jesus did this. Um, one time Jesus said that a, um, uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. Now Pharisees in the first century were holy men. They were people who were, they dressed like so as to indicate that they were very holy and important. And they were very strict about observing the Old Testament laws and that everybody ought to obey them perfectly. And so when people didn't obey them, they'd look down their nose at them and say, you should have done better. You should have done that. And so the Pharisees were known, they were respected as very serious, holy people. But they also tended to be self-righteous. They tended to look down at other people and think better of themselves. Tax collectors, on the other hand, in the first century, we probably don't like paying our taxes that much either, but in the first century, tax collectors were people, in this context, who were hired by the Romans, and they went to collect taxes from their countrymen and when they did go to collect taxes, they would charge extra so they could put it in their own pockets. So they were not only collecting taxes for the Romans, and they didn't want to pay the Romans taxes to begin with. They wanted to be independent of the Romans. So not only were they having to pay taxes to the Romans, they were also being gouged with taxes by the tax collectors. So tax collectors were viewed as bad people, and Pharisees were viewed as holy people. So in Jesus' parable, he says that a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray. The Pharisee lifted up his eyes and he prayed thus to himself, it says. I thank you, God, that I am not like that pathetic tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I pray you know, so many times a day. I do this and I do the other. And then Jesus said, the tax collector wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, who went down to his house that day justified? Who was holy? Who was really righteous that day? 
He said, it was the man who said, be merciful to me. So here's another parable. It makes the same point. Jesus was criticized on one occasion. This is found, I think, in Luke chapter 15. He was criticized on one occasion for hanging around these lowlifes. Why are you over there with them? Why aren't you over with us? And Jesus says, there was a man that had a hundred sheep and one of them went astray. And the shepherd left the 99 to find the one. And when he found it, he bound it up and put it on his shoulders and brought it back home and called all his friends and threw a big party because his sheep that was lost was found. In another parable, in the same context, he says there was a woman that had 10 coins and she lost one and she stayed up all night sweeping her house turning on the lamps until she found the one coin. Probably the ideas of a, some kind of ceremonial headdress or some heirloom, some family heirloom that had these coins in it. And she lost one of them. It was something so precious to her that she searched everywhere to find the coin so that it would be complete. And when she found it, she called all her friends and family members and, and said, rejoice with me because I found the lost coin. The third story is a longer one, the story of the prodigal son that I'm sure you're familiar with. In the prodigal son story, it's much more complex than either of those two stories. You have a, a, a farmer who has two sons. One of his sons wants to leave home. He, he asks his father over and again, give me my inheritance. I'm bored on the farm. I want to go have a fun life. And so eventually his father reluctantly gives him his inheritance. He takes his inheritance and he goes and lives a party life until the money runs out. And he does all the vices that you might imagine that a young man would do, leaving home with a bunch of money in his pocket. And now he has no money left. And so he has to take a job feeding pigs. Now, for an ancient Jew to feed pigs is a real disgrace because uh, pigs were viewed as unclean animals. And so if you eat them, they make you ceremonially unclean. You can't enter the temple. You can't participate in the worship of the people. So you become an outcast. So here he is, an outcast who has wasted all of his inheritance, and now he's feeding pigs, and he comes to his senses, and he says, my father's servants have it better than I have it here. I know what I'll do. I'll go back home. I'm not worthy to be uh, my father's son, but I'm going to ask him if I can be a servant too. And so he goes back home, and when he's still a distance from the house, the father sees him, and he comes running out to embrace him. And he says to the servants around, you know, go kill the fatted calf, throw a big celebration. We're going to party tonight because my son who was lost is found. My son who was dead is alive. The older brother standing off on the side and says, what is this? My scoundrel of a brother leaves home, wastes it all away, and he comes back home and dad treats him like that? Father sees it, he's upset, and he says, what's wrong, my son? And he tells him that, and he says, my son, everything I have is always yours, but your brother was lost, and now he's found. We have to celebrate. These stories, uh, the four that I told you, and I could tell you a lot more, these four stories that Jesus tells shows us something that was deep to the heart of Christ. Deep in his heart was this desire to reach out to the broken, the hurting, the suffering, the lost. That's the pulsating beat of the heart of Christ throughout his life. Even look at his birth. He's born in very humble, lowly circumstances. No room in the inn. And he's born in a manger. In a little town. Poor village. And a poor village to this day or town today. 
but in a very poor, humble circumstances he's born. He grows up in a little small town, Nazareth, up in, in Galilee, of real, really no significance, no real historical significance or importance. And he goes around to towns and villages of people that are not rulers of nations, not people of great power. And it wasn't the people of great knowledge and, and, and theological skill. Those aren't the people Jesus was talking to. He was talking to fishermen. He was talking to farmers. He was talking to, to people like you and me, everyday people. And so if Jesus is, in fact, the God of the universe, taking a piece of his own creation, uniting it to himself, and telling us something, what is he saying? The message he's saying is, I love you. Come home. Come to me and find the life you're looking for. That's the message that resonates through it all. Even when Jesus talks about punishment and judgment, the goal of it all is to get us to our senses. You know, it's kind of like a parent, you know, for those of you that have kids. If, when your kids make bad decisions, and they inevitably do, you know, I, I don't know anybody that didn't have a kid that didn't make bad decisions. All my kids make them, they still make a bunch of them. And so, and I made a bunch of them. And so we all make mistakes. We all have bad judgments, make bad judgments and so on. So, you know, uh, but what do we do as parents? We try to reason with our kids. Sometimes we, you know, get frantic and say, you know, you're going to get run over. Something bad's going to happen to you. You're going to get an accident or you're going to this, that, or the other. You're going to make a bad decision. You're going to have to have consequences the rest of your life of the decisions that you make. We try to scare them. Why do we scare them? Scare them because we love them. Not because we want to push them away. It's because we're frantically trying to get them to come back home. And that's what we find in the Bible. We see God on the one hand frantically reaching out to his people. Come home. You're going to destroy yourselves. On the other hand, he comes to them like a loving shepherd, binding up their wounds and putting us on his shoulders and carrying us. So the, the, the story of Christ is a story of a God who has this incredible, inexplicable love for little creatures like us. Why, why, why would God love creatures like us? He loves us. That's it. He loves us. And the story goes something like this. Think of it like, like this. Um, I think I alluded to it at the beginning, but this subject is so massive. It's like you know, trying to empty out the ocean with a, a little bucket. You know? So we're just emptying out little portions of the ocean with a bucket, and then you look at the ocean, and it looks the same as it did before you started emptying it out. And it's kind of like that with this subject is we could do this forever and we'd still never finish. And so I'm just trying to give little insights that hopefully will get us to what the creed is getting at. So think of this image. Um, think of God who makes the world, and when I say world, I mean, by the world, I mean uh, not just planet Earth, but the whole universe. Everything that's not God. That's what I mean by the world. So the angels, you know, human beings, solar systems, galaxies, quantum particles, whatever exists is in that circle of the world. So God makes the world. And what motivated God to make the world? His will, to love. And God does it freely. So God makes the world in love and in freedom. So freely and in love, God makes the world. And in that world... In this physical world that we're experiencing now, 
there are at least, there is at least one kind of being that can be aware of the fact that we were loved into being by God. Only one kind of being, and that's us. As far as I know, the squirrels and the mosquitoes and the birds <laughs> and the reptiles, none of these creatures could follow anything I'm talking about in this session. We can, though. And so of all the creatures in this world, a million different forms of life on this planet, we alone can be conscious of the fact that we were made by love and in freedom. We alone. And consequently, we alone can go back to the God from whom we have come in freedom and in love. So we alone have freedom and love that allows us to be aware of God and that can allow us to make ourselves a gift back to God. So God's gifted everything to us, and now we can, in love and freedom, return to God. That is the ultimate reason why the world is structured the way that it is. It's a world that allows us to participate in creating our own story of return to God. Every one of us is different. No two of us are exactly the same. We all have different stories, different challenges, different experiences, different, different hopes and dreams and wishes and so on, even though there's a fundamental commonality in all of that. We're all human beings. And so even though I don't, I don't uh, know you and, and don't know all about you, I know some things about you. And one of them is you want to be happy and you want to be fulfilled and you want, you want joy in your life and those kind of things. I don't think anybody's sitting there inside yourself saying, and now I know this guy's an idiot because I want to be miserable and unhappy and, and not having any joy in my life. I don't think anybody's like that. If somebody is like that, there's probably something seriously wrong in their development and in their, their thinking, and there's probably severe depression in their experience. And, and that's really just a, a mechanism to try to cope with the fact that they're not achieving what they really want and are not getting what they really want in their lives. And so we, of all the creatures in this world, have this capacity to, in love and in freedom, turn back to the God who made us and give ourselves back. Now let's explore this just a little bit more. And by the way, I find this framework to be very helpful uh, because uh, it allows us, if we look at it and build on it, which we can't do here too much, but we could take this framework of having come from God in, in love and freedom, and we're called to return to God in love and freedom. Uh, that uh, model or framework would allow us, if we expand upon it, to talk about all that Christian faith is about. For example, God made this world with creatures who can return to him, but we found ourselves going astray. We found ourselves turning away from God, not just us today, but all human beings throughout history. We find ourselves turning away from God in what we call sin, missing the mark. This is the mark. This is where we're supposed to be going. But instead, we chose to turn away in self-destructive, uh, deluded attempts to make of ourselves our own God, to decide our own path, to use our freedom, not in love for God, but in self-centeredness. And so in turning away from God to ourselves, we found ourselves lost. But God did not abandon us there. But God came to us in Christ and through all the other things that God has done through the centuries, but most supremely in Jesus. God comes to us and shows us the path back to himself through Jesus. So through Christ, what did he do? He came and he loved. He loved to death. He gave himself fully. That's what the crucifix is. Every time you see a crucifix, think about the fact that the person hanging on that cross made of himself a total gift. He made of himself a complete gift, not for himself. Everything he did was for others, for you, for me. And so a total self-gift. But if the one hanging on that cross was, in fact, God taking matter to himself, if that's true, 
then God in himself is love. That's the heart of the mystery of the Trinity, is that God is love. And if God is love, then God is not, from all eternity, God is not solitariness. In other words, God's just not sitting all alone. I just thought of the game of solitaire, where you, where you play solitaire all by yourself, when there's nobody else to play with. God is not you know, eternally playing solitaire, and then creates a world. No, God is eternal love. We as human beings find ourselves incomplete, closed in upon ourselves, as we talked about earlier. If I make life all about me, all about pleasure for me, then I find myself very empty. Uh, years ago, I, I saw an article, probably seven, eight years ago, but these kind of things happen with some regularity. I saw an article about um, a man and woman who had been married forever, like 50, 60, 70 years, or whatever it was, a long time. And they had half a dozen kids or whatever, and, uh, and they died within a few hours of each other. They'd been put in a, a nursing home. Uh, both of them had health problems, but they stayed you know, right next to each other. And one of them died, and the other one, a few hours later, died as well. I've seen cases like that in my own experience of people who died relatively short, around, a short time uh, away from each other who had been together for a very, very long time. And uh, they would die. the other one died of a broken heart because they don't want to live without that other that they had been so close to for so long. And so anyway, it was a beautiful write-up, and they had some questions uh, or that were answered by the kids and all this. And so, uh, so I read the article. It was online. I read the article. It was very moving. It was a kind of article that kind of brings tears to your eyes. And then when I got to the comments that people made below it, you know, I'm used to seeing comments that are just negative and sarcastic and mean and so on, at least sprinkled among the good ones. I couldn't find any negative comment in there. They were all very moving comments. Things like, you know, I wish I could find a love like that. Or I'm wiping a tear from my eye. They were all, at least when I read it, uh, you know, beautiful, moving comments about the story. I've never seen a story, for example, about some guy that ran around with a new girl every week or whatever, where people wrote a comment, I'm wiping a tear from my eye, or I wish I could find a guy like that. I don't, find, I don't find anybody that praises that kind of behavior because it's so surface. You know, it treats other persons as just objects for myself. So I use the other person for me. And when I'm tired of them, I go on to somebody else. That's the evil. That's one of the evils of pornography. Just think about it. The other day, I saw some, or a few months ago, I saw some politician or whatever who was caught with a computer or his computer was confiscated, and this is not an uncommon story, uh, caught with a computer that had, I don't know, 10 or 15,000 pornographic images of children on his laptop. 10 or 15,000 images. That's not uncommon for pornographic usage, You're just going from image to image to image to image trying to find one that will excite now. Image to image to image to image. Often in the past, I've, with my students, I'll do a little experiment. I'll say, imagine someone looking at pornographic images, going from image to image to image, and they click the button, and up comes an image of their mother. Yeah, there's a, they, they tend to respond, they're grossed out. Or their sister. Ugh. I said, now, why did you have that reaction when every one of the other images you looked at was somebody's mother or you know, daughter or sister or whatever? Why did you react that way when I said your relatives? It's because they mean something different to you. You see them as a person. 
The others are just objects for use. So if they mean something to me now, fine. But I don't ever, I've never heard a story of somebody that has that one pornographic image they carry around with them their whole life, and they're committed to it. This is the one that, that I'm committed to. No, it's, it's silly. They don't do that because it's not about commitment. It's about self-pleasure. The, uh, the story of the Christian faith is that God is love, which means that it ultimately what comes out of this is that God within himself from all eternity is self-giving. What we see on the cross is only showing us in time, at a moment, what is always true in God. That God is radically turned to the other. So if God is radically turned to the other, well, what other? I mean, God is God. There's only one God. So how's God turned to the other? God is totally self-giving within himself. So God totally gives himself all that he is. And that's the son. The son is the father's total gift of himself. And the father and son together give all that they are. And that's the Holy Spirit. So in God, you have this triadic relationship or relationships where the father gives all. And the self-gift of the father, which is the son, gives all. And that shared gift of themselves is the Holy Spirit. Now, you might say, oh, that's so abstract and that's difficult to get my mind around. Of course it is, because we're talking about God who is infinitely greater than what our minds can understand. So let's go to something more down to earth. Let's go down to our own relationships. And this doesn't have to be just a marriage relationship. It can be other relationships. We uh, Think about uh, the story of Adam and Eve in, in Genesis 2 and 3. God makes the man from the dust of the ground, breathes into his nostrils the breath of life, man becomes a living soul. So here's Adam. The word Adam is the Hebrew word for man. So here's man or human. Here's a human walking around, looking at the garden that God made. And he's got everything that he needs. He's got food to eat on the trees. He's got uh, you know, water to drink of the streams flowing through there. He's got a job. He's supposed to till the garden, take care of it. Uh, he's got stuff to stimulate his mind. The animals walk around. He gives them names and figures out what they are. And so he's got stuff to exercise his mind, things to exercise his body, things to feed himself with. Uh, he's got a test of his will in this mysterious tree of the knowledge of good and evil that's at the center of the garden that God says don't touch. And so now there's something in the garden that, that Adam must discipline himself with respect to. In other words, I can't do every, anything I want. I have to listen to what God tells me to do. So the tree signifies the limits of human power, the limits of human ability to do what they want to do. And so there's the tree that limits the man and tells him don't go any further because you need to listen to God who tells you, you know, this and not that. Uh, so he's got everything he needs, something to exercise his will, his mind, his body, to feed his body and everything, but he's still not complete. The first negative words in the book of Genesis about the creation are, it is not good that the man should be alone. So the scripture says that God causes a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he takes a rib from his side, the covering of the heart, and he makes for him a bride, and he awakes from his sleep, and he sees in his bride what, you know, well, we could put it this way, he fell asleep and he woke up and his dreams came true. He has someone to give his life to. He has someone he can love because he's made in the image of God, the likeness of God. He's similar to God. We don't look like God and God's infinitely greater than we are, but we resemble God 
in that we have a capacity to love and to know and to give of ourselves. So the man wakes up and he finds another in front of him that he can give himself to. And she gives himself back to him. And eventually out of that, one expression of the Trinitarian relationships is out of their love for each other, new life emerges. And we have a triadic relationship in the uh, primordial structures of the family, the home. Now, that's an, God is infinitely greater than that, and all of the things we're talking about need to be discussed more. Like, what do we mean by father and son, and what does all that mean? We obviously don't mean by that a father-son relationship that's bodily and in time and requires a mother and all those things. That's not what we're talking about. Nor are we trying to say that God is male, God's some type of supreme man in the sky like we are. No, these are all, this is all language that we use from our experience to talk about God who is infinitely greater than that. In other words, God is the supreme father. There's no matter, carnal relationships that are involved with this. This is a purely spiritual gift of the father, and that is who the son is. And the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from that. There is so much to say about these things, but what, what I want to get to here in this is we'll run short on time, and I want to see if there's some, any questions that you have about this. But what we get to at the end of all of this is that the mystery of the Trinity which is the heart of our faith, because we're supposed to be talking about the creed. And if you look at the creed, it just summarizes what I've been talking about regarding the Father who made all things, the Son who proceeds from the Father. Think about the words of the creed when you, when you hear them and as you learn them, and, and I'm sure you know them to different degrees. Think about it. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of the Father, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, Begotten, not made. There's an important distinction there. You know, somebody made that work of art on the wall over there. But when I look at that work of art on the wall that was made by somebody, I see something about the artist. I can see something about their creativity and their talent. But I can't tell you much more than that. I can tell you they're a human, most likely, uh, that, that painted that. Uh, but I can't tell you all about them. I can't tell you what they look like or anything like that, just in very general, vague terms, perhaps. I don't know if it was a man or a woman that, that painted that on the wall. I don't know what century they, were, they lived in. I could probably find those things out, but I don't know them just by looking at that painting on the wall. But if you are begotten, that means you are one of the same nature. If you are begotten of your parents, I've never met any of your parents that I know of, but when I look at you, I am seeing one who shares the same nature as your parents. And you carry in you much of what was in your parents. The same you know, uh, DNA and all of these things that was derived from your parents uh, and is explained by your relationship to them is present in you. When we talk about the Father and the Son in the Trinity, what we're talking about is not DNA. We're not talking about physical birth or any of those things. What we're saying is that the Father and the Son are one in nature. They are both eternal God, inseparably one. When we say that we believe in one God, we take that very, very seriously. You cannot separate the Father and the Son. You know, like I was telling you the story of the old couple who passed away and one died shortly after the other. Well, think about that closeness of that relationship and then magnify it by infinity. The Father and the Son simply cannot be thought of apart from each other. Because the Son is the Father giving everything that He is. And the Son is the reception of all that the Father is. You take that relationship apart and Father and Son don't mean anything anymore. Those terms only have meaning in, in relationship to that which 
originates those relationships. That's what causes those relationships, which is the love between the Father and the Son. So in the Genesis story of Adam and Eve, remember it says that a man and a woman will leave father and mother and will cleave to each other, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are one. They're one. But they're still two. Husband and wife don't become one person. But they're two in person, but one in their union. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. They are inseparable. You can't tear them apart. You can't conceive of them apart from each other. You can't separate them from each other, but you can distinguish between them. The Father gives, and that's the Son. The Son reciprocates, and that's the, the Father's love returned to Him, and that is the Holy Spirit as it proceeds from, from the two, Father and Son. Okay. Um, any questions about that? I can keep talking forever on this, but are there any are there any questions about when we talk about God as Father, Son, Holy Spirit? What we profess in our creed: Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The essence of God is love. John says that in his first letter in the New Testament: God is love, and he who loves is born of God. He who does not love has not seen God. So. Self-giving, the gift of oneself, we see it in Christ, is the very heart and essence of God. We know that most supremely by looking at Jesus, because that's God taking his own creation and showing through it what God is like in himself. No other religion, as beautiful as other religions are in many of their insights, no other religion sees God as love as we do. That is the heart of Christianity. That's the ultimate reason I am a Christian. I say that often. I speak about the Trinity quite a bit. And so uh, regularly I'll say about the Trinity, this is the most supreme reason I want to be a Christian, a Catholic Christian, is because of this. It changes all about life. It changes the way I think about how God views us. It changes the way I view my wife, my children, my students, my colleagues. It affects all of that. I don't always live that perfectly. Uh, sometimes I'm forgetful, as we tend to be as human beings. But then I feel bad about it because this is what I'm supposed to be living. I'm supposed to be reflecting the Trinity in my life. Jesus said that John 17, the chapter I referred to earlier, later in the chapter, he's in, this is him praying to his Father. And he says, Father, I pray that they may be one in us. Speaking of his disciples, I pray that they may be one in us. That as you, Father, have loved me before the creation of the world, I have loved them. And I pray that they may love one another and that the world may know that you sent me through the love they have one for one another. So think of it this way. God, from all eternity, Father loved his Son. And his Son comes into the world and loves his disciples. And he says, Father, I pray that they'll love each other so that the world will know that you sent me. So the way that we're supposed to be as Christians, as Catholic Christians, the way we're supposed to live our lives is that I resemble Jesus in the way that I love. And that's the way we win the world to our faith. We don't win the world by arguing or by scolding and you know, shaming and so on. We don't win the world that way. We win people by our love. It's the holy people that are filled with the love of God that end up drawing others to the faith. Uh, so that's, that's the great challenge of the mystery of the Trinity is it's a call to love. Uh, 
And it, it also, like I say, it, it sets apart what we say from every other religion in the world. Nobody says it like this. Nobody does. Uh, it's uh, very, very different. So, um, all right. Any uh, questions, challenges, thoughts, confusions, doubts? You're a quiet bunch. <laughs> Usually by now somebody wants to fuss about something. So, uh, who are you? What, uh, what, is, uh, what is this class? Uh, I think Wednesday's RCIA. This is, what is this class? Adult confirmation. Adult confirmation, okay. So you are people who are Catholics, but you didn't ever go through confirmation, is that right? Okay. So the RCIA, I guess, for here is, is just people who want to become Catholics and enter the church, okay. Um, so, uh, I'm trying to dredge some questions out of them. Oh uh, yeah? yeah, they're a quiet group. They're, they're a very quiet bunch. <laughs> they're like, it's almost two o'clock, Mark. We're like, we're on with our day. Is it almost two? It is almost two. Uh, well, let's let's maybe we can make a deal. We've got ten minutes left. I can talk for ten minutes uninterrupted, or we can talk for five minutes. In, res in response to your questions, you and we can go five minutes early. Somebody maybe. Okay, how about this? Um, this is actually the first time that I've heard anyone resorted so much to love, which I truly enjoyed, Mark. Thank you so much. But growing up as a Catholic and a Christian, because I actually practiced in both growing up, you know, like we would move and then things would change. Mm -hmm. Like no one really resorted it that way. They almost made it like a God-fearing thing. Mm -hmm. Um, so how did it come to such a progression to just resort it around love? Yeah, uh, that's, that's a, an interesting question. We're always, human beings in general, are always, uh, it's like driving a car. You know, if I drive down the road and I let go of the wheel, I start to go off the road. I've got to hold the wheel constantly. And we, we always, in the history of the church, in the history of you know, Christianity in general, and in Catholicism, we always are struggling to maintain the balance of things. And so, um, you know, so one of the dangers, like if all you emphasize is the love of God, then you could become indifferent. You know, like, oh, well, it's just like with a parent. If I never, you know, correct my kids, then they start taking advantage of me. Or like we have teachers sometimes who they just want to be nice to their students. Well, then the students run over them eventually. Uh, because they need to also establish boundaries and, and that kind of thing. So what happens sometimes is it, there's all kinds of issues. You know, like, it's just like in my my uh, my own spiritual journey. It's like the uh, it's like the seasons of the year. It's, it's like you know, yesterday it was beautiful outside. Uh, today it's very pretty outside. I think it's supposed to rain tomorrow. Uh, I think it's like an eighty percent chance of rain tomorrow, and it's going to warm back up some, and it's going to go up and down. And so the, the the days go up and down and up and down and up and down. And if we're not careful, the ups and downs of life can catch me. And I can, let's say I kind of get a little, a little lukewarm in my Christian life and my prayer life or whatever. And then I can kind of get where I'm, maybe I get more cynical or I'm less fervent and caring or whatever. Uh, or whatever, you know, it, what, the point that I'm trying to get at is, how does, how does Christianity lose sight of? How, do, how does Catholics lose sight of these things? 
Well, we don't talk about them as we should. We don't, we don't, uh, we don't focus on them. We don't share them enough. We don't preach about them enough. We don't, uh, and so what ends up happening is other things fill that vacuum. And one, one way to do it, and it's always a temptation. It's always a temptation to, if I'm, you know, I'm a practicing Catholic. I go to Mass on Sunday, and then I see people who aren't going. And it's very easy for me to go and say, hmm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm doing pretty well. Uh, I'm pretty holy, because there's an awful lot of people that aren't doing as much as me. And then if I let that go, if I let that get a, a hook inside of me, and before you know it, I'm just like a Pharisee. And I'm looking down at everybody. On the other hand, I can say, you know, I can do the opposite. I can say, look at all those hypocrites over at the church. You know, look at all these people who are saying stuff and doing something else. And look how judgmental they are and how mean they are and stuff. I don't want to have anything to do with that. I can be, I can be better than them but not have anything to do with the church. So there's that extreme. There's all kinds of ways. Yes, I often try to pray, not as much as I should, but I often try to pray, God, keep me simple. Just, I want to go back to basics. I just want to love God. I want to love my neighbor. That's what Jesus said. That's the great commandments, to love God and love your neighbor. That in and of itself is interesting. Loving God and loving neighbor are the supreme commandments, and God is love. And so the Trinity, from the Trinity, issues the greatest commandments, to love God and love neighbor. Uh, and so, you know, um, so your, your question, I think, is a beautiful question, which is, why don't we live this more? Why don't we preach this more? Why isn't this the heart of everything. And I think it's because, a part of it is because we as human beings tend to lose sight of what is central. And we gotta fight for it. You know, so it's just something that we have to fight for. Um, you know, there are all kinds of distractions in our world. You know, I, I'm, I've got an article in my mind that I wanna write. My wife and I go, I'll finish with this. Uh, I think it's a great question to finish with. Um, uh, my wife and I kind of regularly, close to our home is a big mall. and. Uh, and I try to get a certain number of steps each day. It's easy for me to be sedentary and sit still during big parts of the day, just in the work that I do. And so I try to get a certain amount of steps, and so I go walk during the day some, I walk in the morning, and then in the, e in the evening, oftentimes on our way home, we'll stop at this mall and I'll get the rest of my steps in. And so I, one of the things, walking through a mall with several big department stores and other stuff, I'm in there just to get steps, but there's also all these images and people trying to get me to buy stuff. And so I'm going to walk through there one of these days soon, and I'm going to just write down, uh, you know, all the things they're trying to get me to buy in this store. So, like the advertisements and things. Like they're going to try to get me to buy stuff that's going to make me look younger, that's going to make me look better, that's going to make me stronger, that's going to make me, you know, the health, at the pill store, you know, the health store or whatever. They're going to they're going to try to get me get me to eat stuff that's going to make me have good taste, you know, experience. There are all these things they're trying to get me to do there. And most of those things they're trying to get me to do are trying to appeal to my ego or to my a sense of, uh, we talked earlier about those different levels of things, you know, like pleasure and success. Most of the things that I see at the mall are, are feeding off of that. Most of the things at the mall are not going to tell me, you know, think about where you're giving your money. Do you really want to buy this expensive thing here when you could be giving it to the poor? Or you could be helping your community. Most of them aren't going to do that. They might give me the option of giving some money when I check out, you know, or whatever, to some cause. But most of the things at the mall, and I'm just using the mall as an example. Turn on the football game, and you'll see the same thing. Buy this car, and you'll be really successful. And you'll look really, you know, you'll have a nice, pleasurable experience. And people look at you and say, wow, look how successful you are, or whatever. They appeal to those levels. They appeal to the ego and to my private fulfillment. 
Uh, and so the world is filled with those voices that are coming to me. And we can, in the context of our religious faith, feed into that too. So religion that should call me to love, I can bring into the context of love my ego, my self-concerns, and then I make, I hear sometimes, for example, about fighting in churches. You know, fighting between people in the church that feel like they, they, they want more power, they want to have a say in this, that, or the other. And rather than caring for the people around them and trying to understand each other, they become hateful and divisive. That's their ego. It's not love that's driving those things most of the time. It's not love. It's other motivating things. So I guess at the end of the day, what is the cause of the imbalance in, in, uh, in the church? Always it's a struggle. It's always a fight. Driving the car, you've got to constantly keep it straight. So, you know, I would recommend, and this will be my, for real, this will be the last thing. Uh, I would recommend that in your journey, in your Christian journey, in your Catholic journey, make sure every day you set aside some time to pray, some time to take care of yourself, take care of your body, take care of your mind, take care of your emotions, take care of your spiritual life. Every day, do something to keep those things in order. Lots of ways of doing that. Find a good book, you know, a good book that'll, that'll feed your soul. Read the scriptures, uh, pray, develop a life of prayer that will help you keep things in focus and balance. Uh, and don't let them become just rote things that you do. Let them become uh, meaningful things that you do. And let that grow over time. Uh, maybe it'd be good to conclude with prayer. It's been a wonderful being with you uh, today. And, I, and I, I'll, I'll keep you in my prayers and you pray for me too that, that we'll all do well in this journey. Uh, that's a beautiful one. It's a beautiful journey. And, uh, but it's one we have to work at and, and, and stay focused. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Loving God, we thank you for this time we've had together. We pray that it be meaningful to us. Help us to love you. Help us to discover you as uh, eternal, infinite love. And may that affect the way we treat one another. May it affect the way that we see your calling to us in this world. And may it help us to make of ourselves a gift back to you. Uh, grant us these graces, we pray, and your help in our ongoing journey to you. And we pray this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Enjoy your day. Hope to see you again. Thanks, everybody. If you could follow your name tag in the accordion again. Um, my last name, that would be really helpful to me. And I'll see you next week.